I'm delighted to be here today um, and I'd like to thank uh, Siobhan and the Library for the invitation to speak um, in addition to Folklore in the Nuorega and uh, of course the Dictionary of Irish Biography. So this year marks the centenary of the death of the Celtic scholar Standish Hayes O'Grady at the age of 83. An obituary appeared the following year, penned by the Celtic scholar Eleanor Hull, in which she described him as follows, and this is number one in your handout. The last of the great Irish antiquarians of the past, the men who had absorbed with their native air the language and traditions of their race, and who, though they might go forth to learn Irish and Latin outside, remained essentially and distinctively Irish men. We number Standish Hayes O'Grady, not with the scholars to whom Irish is an antiquarian and philological study, who are interested in Gaelic because it is a branch of Celtic, and in Celtic because of its Indo-European roots and affinities. We think of him as one, the last, of the race of the Ahoses, Macferbuses, O'Clearys and O'Curries, to whom the native language and the native literature were their vital breath and, their essen and the essence of their thought. And the distinction Hull was making here between O'Grady and the other scholars is important. She was marking him out from the continental linguists who were interested in the study of the Irish language for philological reasons, and whose approach to the study of the language was of a scientific nature. Most of them were unable to speak the modern spoken language, or indeed had little or no interest in it. Instead, Hull presented O'Grady as belonging to a long line of native scholars for whom the language and literature was an essential part of their being, men such as Andul Thochmach Irvishi and Eugene O'Curry before him. She praised O'Grady for his learning, stating, and this is number two, of all the learned men that I have met, I think Dr. O'Grady was the most learned. A sound classical scholar, a fluent linguist, knowing French and German like a native, he was armed with all kinds of recondite learning, medieval, oriental, classical. And then she continued, and number three, a Gaelic leaguer before the Gaelic League was founded, the modern Irish League idea, Gaelic League idea of a closed Ireland had no meaning or charm for him. He would have scouted it as retrograde and childish. And I think this reference here to the Gaelic League is important. Um, what she was trying to say really was that um, he wouldn't have been a proponent of the Irish Ireland idea, um, so that he was more open-minded uh, than that. And this, um, I suppose, its epitaph of, uh, of Hull's is, is laudatory. But the purpose of my lecture today is to examine O'Grady's contribution to Celtic studies, and in doing so, provide perhaps a more balanced assessment of his legacy as a Celtic scholar. So I'd like to begin with a brief overview of his life. He was born on the 19th of May, 1832, in a Rhina house near Castleconnell, County Limerick. He was the son of Admiral Hayes O'Grady, who had fought alongside with Nelson and Susan Finucane. His father, um, he was, excuse me, he was a cousin of Standish James O'Grady, the novelist. A Rhina house was situated on the Clare side of the Shannon, in the townland of Kiltannan Leigh, or Kiltannan Lee in the barony of Lower Tulla. According to a number of sources, O'Grady learned Irish as a child. His friend Sir Norman Moore, whose obituary of O'Grady was published in the Times Literary Supplement on the 28th of October 1915, stated that Standish was fostered in Coona, County Limerick, so just on the outskirts of Limerick City. And this was an Irish-speaking area on the border with County Clare. 
He noted that O'Grady already knew modern Irish perfectly when he went to rugby in England. Douglas Hyde noted the following in Misha Oxon Conra. Visha Lassa le Grad on Rege, Tango de Larche on Oiga, Agus Gontier. O'Grady received his secondary education in rugby in the 1840s. He didn't neglect his interest in the language while there. An obituary published by Crone and Hull in the Irish Book Lover in 1915 stated that he had scaled a wall there uh, in order to converse with passing Irish migrant workers in their mother tongue, quote, to their great astonishment and enjoyment. On leaving school in rugby, he attended Trinity College Dublin from 1850 to 1854, but he did not graduate. On leaving college, he began work as a civil engineer and spent a number of years working at the laying of railways in Ireland. He travelled to the United States in 1858, where he worked in the gold mines and at one stage ran a coasting schooner. Around 1862 or 3, on the death of his brother Carew, his father called him home, but then his father died shortly after that, and it seems that O'Grady moved to England. There's some uncertainty about his life around this time. Around 1874, he travelled to Australia, probably working his passage, but he doesn't appear to have spent long there, um, and this seems to be due to sight problems. So he was quite well travelled, um, it appears. Then in 1882, he applied for a post of Professor of Celtic Studies in Edinburgh University. Although his application was accompanied by testimonials from eminent Celtic scholars such as Whitley Stokes, Ernst Windisch and William Wright, Professor of Arabic in Cambridge, he was unsuccessful and the post went to Donald MacKinnon. Cambridge University awarded him a D.Lit in 1893 and he died on the 16th of October 1915 in his home in Hale, Cheshire. So, so much for his background. I'd like to focus now on his uh, scholarly work, particularly his work as a Celtic scholar. To best understand this work, I believe he needs to be viewed through two prisms. First, his scholarship should be situated in the context of antiquarian studies and the emerging field of Celtic studies in Ireland during the latter half of the 19th century. And second, his scholarship should also be assessed in the context of the work being conducted on the continent by linguists such as Franz Bopp, Johann Kaspar Zeus, Ernst Windisch and Heinrich Zimmer, to name but a few. O'Grady may have come into contact with the Gaelic literary tradition at an early age, so we know that he was an Irish speaker from an early age, but then the literary tradition obviously is um, something else. According to Robin Flower's biographical notice in the second volume of Catalogue of Irish Manuscripts in the British Museum, O'Grady was, quote, from boyhood in touch with the rich traditions of pre-famine Ireland, end quote. In the introduction to his edition of Thoriach Dhirmada Agus Cronje, published in Transactions of the Oceanic Society in 1857, O'Grady commented on the reading aloud of Irish language manuscripts in farmers' houses. And this is number four on your handout. The writer has heard a man who never possessed a manuscript, nor heard of O'Flanagan's publication, and this is a reference here probably to Theophilus O'Flanagan's publication, um, Transactions of the Gaelic Society of Dublin, um, published in the beginning of the um, 19th century. Um, so they had never heard of O'Flanagan's publication, related the fireside, the death of the sons of Ishnach, without omitting one adventure, and in great part retaining the very words of the written versions. Brandon O'Madagon has suggested in Unreige Limnoch Milishak Gaed Gudi Melanegaid 
that O'Grady was referring here to childhood memories of the tradition, so that he would observe uh, the reading aloud um, of manuscripts. In addition, obviously, to the oral recitation of, of stories from, from the manuscript tradition. It appears that O'Grady was already engaged in inquiries into the Gaelic oral and literary tradition while in secondary school, as is evidenced by a series of letters between himself and the bookseller and publisher John O'Daly, and I'm assuming this was during his school holidays when he was at home. In February 1850, O'Grady was in Monkstown, County Cork, collecting folk songs, and he sent copies to O'Daly. And I'll just quote briefly from one of those letters. I took them myself from the mouths of illiterate people, which will excuse mistakes, but I think the language is pretty correct. End quote. The letters are full of enthusiasm and questions, and he clearly was preparing for his entry to Trinity College Dublin as a student. For example, he asked the following question. What Irish grammar is in use in Trinity, and which dialect is there thought, that of Munster or Connacht? In a letter the following month, he stated his intention of becoming a member of the Celtic Society when in Trinity, and assured O'Daly that if he came across specimens of the handwriting of the bards, that he would forward them to O'Daly. O'Grady continued to collect examples of folk songs on O'Daly's behalf in County Cork. So, for example, in September 1850, O'Daly sent him one pound in order to pay an elderly farmer for his songs. O'Grady's letters to him are full of questions as to whether certain poems or texts had been published. Quote, Is there no complete edition of Keating in Irish? Have you published David O'Bruther's poems yet? What is the price of the Four Masters, Connellan's translations? The relationship between O'Grady and O'Daly is an important one, and O'Daly was extremely encouraging of um, O'Grady in his scholarly endeavours. And I think we can see here from the letters just the enthusiasm of the young scholar um, and trying to gather as much information as possible. Um, O'Daly clearly held O'Grady's skills in high esteem, and he referred to the scholar as the celebrated translator in a letter dated the 1st of February 1854 to the Cork antiquarian John Wendell. While in Trinity, he became friendly with James Goodman, later Professor of Irish in Trinity. It is likely that while there, he also became a friend of the Celtic scholar Whitley Stokes, and I'll return to their scholarly relationship later. During his student days, he was engaged in the study of Irish language manuscripts. He became acquainted with the leading scholars and antiquarians, John O'Donovan, George Petrie, and Eugene O'Curry. His handwriting was later praised by Hull, as was his ability to compose poetry in classical Irish. So this is number five uh, on the handout. His handwriting, both in English and Irish, was beautiful, fine, clear, and exactly formed, such as we seldom see among writers of either tongue today. His Irish script is closer than O'Cleary's and more elegant than O'Curry's hand. He would turn off a quatrain in bardic form without a pause, with the facility of the man trained in the bardic schools. He was already practising poetical composition during his time as a student. He was in correspondence with the County Clare scribe Donald McConsidine of Ennis, County Clare. A number of O'Grady's compositions and letters between the two men are preserved in McConsidine's manuscript, which is Murphy 63 in UCC. This uh, manuscript was written between 1853 and 1859. One letter dated 1853 is signed, Agoni de Charyilish Standish e O'Grada, so 
uh, your uh, dear friend always, um, Stanish O'Grady. MacConstantine included the following approbation of O'Grady's poetic skills in the following note. This is number six. On the 18th of May, 1855, I received from him, per post from Dublin, the following reply. And then he gives a, um, a poem. The poem alone displays Mr. O'Grady's veritable genius for poetry, profound erudition, polished education, high intellectual acquirements, and courteous disposition, all of which he is known to possess. There are also replies to some of his verses by Nicholas O'Hay included in the manuscript. So this gives us uh, some hint of um, his ability, or at least some of his early work um, in composing poetry. The pieces of poetry in Irish by O'Grady that are contained in the manuscript are clearly the composition of a young man. One example is entitled Ran Duru Lestandish Eograda on the Urdu Fogus Spane, Ganachidaragna Edi, or Nimach Dulling Gahobin. So, um, a poem that he composed when he was left in Spain without money or clothes, when his ship sailed uh, without uh, warning. And I've just given that as number seven. Um, I haven't translated it, um, but basically, that, that's the, the gist of, of the verse. A lung gan truid a dullananwum tarsoil le gui, a dog gan fugrame snetruklev narrohon queen. Nach docht an humungard so, dum huhan law so scrivum, gan lum hushtin lo agam nespuna as moala inis. There must have been regular correspondence between O'Hay and O'Grady. On the 13th of December 1850, O'Hay wrote, and this is um, number eight. A usel, the furis, the litter, Augustalyar, as ni idfa eni the horchogum botanavi lomna e. So, sir, I received your letter and book, and you couldn't have sent anything more pleasurable to me uh, than, than it. Um, or the vidul agsmin agoni agum ohush moige, hum dentasi fili in the heron, agsgaspecial to the moon, the lave agsgaspecial. So I always enjoyed, since my youth, the compositions of the poets of Ireland, and especially those of Munster. The Batlum i action of Wurm Marlaur i Hala. So I was surprised uh, or astonished to see them um, in that form in uh, O'Daly's book. So it seems that O'Grady had sent O'Hay a copy of John O'Daly's The Poets and Poetry of Munster, published in 1849. So even this exchange of material is quite interesting and I think important as well. Um, someone so prominent, I suppose, uh, or someone who's becoming prominent in the Gaelic world, in the, the world of Celtic um, scholarship, and then uh, regular, um, I suppose, scribes, uh, poets, native scholars, really, um, in, in the, um, I suppose, in, in, a, in a rural um, context, and the fact that they were exchanging this kind of material between them. The letter finishes with the following interesting sentence, and this is um, number nine. Ni ad so gonfragr her hugget, ach the vases o tatu agloshte, nor vats runachdom letter her gudihu on. And uh, I was kind of wondering about that. Um, this is Mackay writing to um, uh, O'Grady, saying that he would have sent, he would have replied earlier, that he would have sent this letter um, to um, O'Grady earlier, except that he was in college, so in Trinity, but uh, that he was didn't think it was appropriate to send him a letter there. So um, 
I suppose in a way it gives an indication maybe uh, that they they weren't on an equal status that um that there was some inequality there in the relationship um but unfortunately there's no more information than that so we can really only speculate um as to what exactly he meant by it um O'Grady's publications then um while still a student in Trinity O'Grady edited Achtra Gilla Amaran the adventures of Donachrua Macconmara it was published by John O'Daly in 1853 under the name S. Hayes. Based on a letter between O'Daly and Wendell, it doesn't appear to have been particularly successful commercially. His translation marks a departure from the style of translation practiced by other translators such as W.H. Drummond, which was very free and could be termed imitation rather than translation. And that was so typical really of um, the work, for example, of Charlotte Brooke as well in the um, 1780s, uh, Joseph Cooper Walker's work and other translators that followed them. Um, you really couldn't call their translations translations as such. They were more um, imitations and very free translations, I suppose. Um, according to Robert Welsh, O'Grady's translation is closely linked to the Irish text and succeeds in conveying much of the spirit of McConmara's original. He translated the poems into heroic couplets and although, as, which, as Welsh states, quote, it fails to do complete justice to the free, strong music of Macconmara's driving assonantal lines, nevertheless, O'Grady's version has considerable merit, end quote. And the lines in question, these are um, number 10 on the handout. Uh, they give an account of Macconmara's setting out on his adventures. Er the Fabus Vi ferik er mahata savashin sferer. The rinu hum jackets biog gara gara lismeda, se leteka braka gabara mavera. The hurs slon rim horde nenacht is like quids near August slon le foregen. So a literal translation of that uh, stanza. With the coming of morning, I jumped up lightly out of my bed with pleasure at that story. This is the prospect of going to New England. I grasped my stick and would not stop at all. There was a fashionable peak to my cap with an edge on it. Little short jackets were made for me in preparation and checked shirts to the tips of my fingers. I bade farewell to my friends at once and to some I did not say goodbye quickly. So, an example now of O'Grady's rendering in English. When morning broke, I lightly left my bed, so pleased was I with all my plans and sped to bid my friends farewell in such a haste that to wish all goodbye seemed quite a waste of time. So with a knowing hat and band of sweetest fashion, and my stick in hand, a jacket which a dandy would not scout, and clean check shirt with wristbands peeping out, away I went. So although it doesn't fully convey the liveliness of the original poem, Welsh believed that O'Grady's translation was successful for the following reason. Um, so I'm just going to quote briefly, it's not on your handout. For liveliness, interest and clarity, this surpasses anything in Drummond, and opens up an area of Gaelic literature to the 19th century far different from the melancholy longing of Callanan, the freshness of the best of Ferguson and Walsh, and the lyrical intensity of Mangan. So he's naming all of the main translators of the time here. Here the Gaelic comic spirit, parodic and mocking, manifests itself in English without descending to sly hobbledehoy knockabout. Prior to this, 19th century translator, translators had tended to concentrate on translating laments, odes, elegies and love songs and had neglected the comic tradition in Irish verse. 
Summing up the importance of O'Grady's edition and translation of this poem, Welsh notes that O'Grady did something to remedy the impression that the Irish tradition was serious and sad. And according to Welsh, quote, it is a tribute to his scholarly curiosity, his Catholicity of taste, and I kind of find that quite interesting, um, O'Grady was a Protestant, and his, pro his poetic ability, that this poem caught his sympathetic attention and stimulated his considerable poetic talents. So O'Grady's next publication, it came out four years later, um, and it was uh, volume three of the Transactions of the Oceanic Society. O'Grady was a founding member of the Oceanic Society in 1853, along with John O'Daly and William Elliot Hudson. The Society was founded with the aim of collecting and publishing the poems and tales relating to the Fionn cycle, so stories relating to Fionn Macool and uh, Oisin, um, particularly those that were preserved in Irish language manuscripts. Its membership was predominantly Catholic, um, although, as I just already said, um, O'Grady himself was a Protestant, as was his successor as president, uh, William Smith O'Brien. Other prominent figures who were also members included Owen Conlon, John O'Donovan, John Wendell, and Nicholas Kearney. And O'Grady was elected president in 1855. <coughs> Volume three, three of the transactions included his edition of Thoriach Yermida Agus and as well as that, um, an oceanic ballad entitled Qui Oshin Anik Nafena, so Oshin's Lament after <coughs> the Fina. The publication was badly received, however, particularly by Eugene O'Curry. His attack on O'Grady and the volume should be placed in the wider context of an acrimonious relationship between the Irish Archaeological and Celtic Society, of which O'Curry was a member, and the Oceanic Society. And the publication was a stick, therefore, with which O'Curry could beat O'Daly. O'Curry had also criticised the Society's second volume, so there was history there, obviously, already. Furthermore, he was a council member of the Royal Irish Academy, and there was a perception by members of the Oceanic Society, John Wendell and John O'Daly in particular, that O'Curry's con uh, controlled access to the Academy's manuscripts. John O'Daly wrote the following to Wendell on the 19th of December 1857, and this is um, number 11. Curry is doing us all the injury he possibly can, and we are going to have a meeting tomorrow to institute proceedings against him. He has told Smith O'Brien that the Quay Oshin in the volume is a fabrication of our own, where we have three copies of it provided. Even at the risk of losing a year's subscriptions, at last we must stop Curry's mouth. Father Kelly, and this Father Kelly was based in Maynooth, uh, is also indignant at Curry's talk and tells me directly that I'm only a tool in the hands of the Ossians to enable them to publish spurious books and that he will never again buy any book published by me. So strong words here. So you see this necessity of muzzling the bear, and of course that's uh, referring to Curry. Um, and if we don't muzzle him now, na baklesh. So O'Daly's confidence in O'Grady was shaken somewhat. And uh, just a short quote here. If the book is Macphersonized by O'Grady, he richly deserves a castigation, but I don't think he would do it. But the case at present looks very suspicious. And this re reference here to Macpherson, um, it was a re reference to James Macpherson from the 18th century, the mid-18th century, who had claimed to have translated um, the poems of Ossian. Um, that he'd gathered in the Scottish Highlands uh, from Scottish Gaelic into English. 
and then there were accusations of fabrication that he'd fabricated a lot of them so nowadays we know that actually the story was a lot more complicated than that that um he he drew on a number maybe 14 or 15 original poems and then um but that as time went on uh, that he did um treat them very liberally and maybe included some of his own um um compositions but so this is the reference here that um oh, oh um O'Grady was Macphersonizing um, the the um, text. Um, he was, and it was, you know, a very strong accusation. So as a result, because Macpherson's publications were very, very controversial at the time, and that controversy obviously continued into the 19th century. Um, so O'Daly was keen to have a look at the manuscript O'Grady had used as a source, which he had obtained from Goodman. And he became more and more impatient with O'Grady's delay in producing it. When O'Grady eventually did give it to O'Daly, he doesn't appear to have eased the latter's concerns. In a letter to Wendell, O'Daly stated, quote, I find that it bears out Mr. O'Grady as far as his original goes, but I really have no faith in the genuineness of the book, as I find a good many words embodied in Fenian romances which are below barbarity. So again, just indicates really that, that his confidence uh, is a little shaken in um, O'Grady. In fact, O'Grady or Goodman hadn't been conspiring to dupe O'Daly or anyone else, and they hadn't forged any material, although admittedly there were flaws in O'Grady's text. O'Curry publicly attacked O'Grady in a review in the tablet, questioning his ability as a scholar. So this is number 12. The publications of the Oceanic Society must be edited with the same copious erudition the same profusion of, of illustrative annotation if the society wished for success. We trust this unsatisfactory scantiness of comment will not disfigure their future volumes. So here he's quite critical of the fact that, um, as far as he's concerned, there's not enough commentary on the text included. We should strongly recommend the Oceanic Society to compare their copies with those in our great libraries and procure romances and poems in which the fire and spirit of better days are preserved. But in order to do so, they must have translators familiar with the ancient dialects. So here he's really attacking um, uh, O'Grady's ability as translator. Let us respectfully observe that the Oceanic Society should beware, at least they damage the cause of Irish literature by ill-directed efforts to advance it. This damage will be influenced in many ways, but especially by the selection of bad copies. O'Daly was outraged at the attack and wrote to Wendell, uh, this is number 13. When you read that article, which was written by a minion of his called O'Keefe, who knows not a single word of Irish except what O'Curry puts in his mouth, you will agree with me that the Oceanics must be up and stirring. O'Curry's ignorance and incapabilities as an Irish scholar must be exposed. The article will make your flesh shudder and creep, so he's referring to the review. What is worse, it will show you the enmity of the man who is pocketing so much of the public money and doing nothing. It is a great matter that we will have the opportunity of thrashing him soundly once in his lifetime. What do you think he also did? He bought up every copy of the tablet containing the article in question and sent it to the most influential members of the society, which made the paper so scarce that a copy could not be got the same evening for love or money, and the wonder is that he not send you one. So again, this just gives an indication of how acrimonious the, the relationship was between a number of these scholars. Um, and really, um, 
I suppose it really comes down to um, competition, I suppose, ego, but also um, their attitude to how best to edit texts, I suppose. Um, as far as though Curry was aware or concerned, um, he felt that maybe the, the best copy hadn't been used um, in the transactions of that particular text. So admittedly, there were some issues with O'Grady's text, and a later editor, Nessany Hay, noted that it was, quote, possible to improve on O'Grady's text, owing to his vagueness in the discussion on sources, end quote. Nevertheless, she described his English rendering of the story as a delight to read. The whole escapade with O'Curry and O'Daly must have left a bitter taste in O'Grady's mouth, because soon afterwards he resigned as president of the Oceanic Society. And rather than attending the society's meeting to do so in person, he sent in a note. Later that year, he was in America, and he appears not to have been in contact with O'Daly. In the aftermath of the controversy, O'Grady appears to have abandoned his academic work for approximately 30 years, so it's a very long period. Um, and this may have been due in part to the poor reception Thoriath received. But it should also be remembered that he spent most of the intervening period in America, Australia and England, although maybe it's difficult to know, maybe he left the country because of the controversy. Um, again, we, we've no re real information as to why um, he did leave the country. But by the 1880s, he was actively engaged in Celtic scholarship again, and he published a severe review of Kuno Meyer's edition of Kafion Thra, uh, published in 1884, in the Transactions of the Philological Society. And this was at the request of Whitley Stokes. And Meyer was extremely upset at the review, so it was uh, quite a harsh review. So now moving on to O'Grady's most important work, or what's considered maybe his most important work, Silva Gedelica, which was published in 1892. It was a collection of 31 Irish tales and other pieces from manuscripts such as the Book of Leinster, Llaubrac, and these were um, sorted under various headings that included hagiology, legend, oceanic lore and fiction. The work was also his most controversial. It was criticised by Kuno Meyer in a series of three reviews published in Revue Celtique uh, in 1893. Meyer's review was far more critical than O'Grady's had been, and it's said to have hurt O'Grady deeply. <coughs> Referring to O'Grady's text of Agul of Nishanorach, published as part of Silva Gedelica, Whitley Stokes claimed that, quote, of the 3,260 lines or thereabout which it contains, hardly a single line correctly represents the manuscript. End quote. He added considerably to Meyer's list of Corrigenda. Most of his 36 pages of textual notes are devoted to them. And I mentioned um, at the beginning of the lecture that O'Grady and Stokes were friends in Trinity. In 1863, during O'Grady's break from work in the field of Celtic studies, Stokes commented, he would have been greater than any Celtic scholar that ever, ever lived. So obviously he held him in high esteem um, at that stage in 1863. But in the period preceding the publication of Stokes' own edition of Oglove, O'Grady's friendship with Stokes appears to have cooled. According to R.I. Best, Stokes had a tendency to be severe on the work of others and to engage in controversies that made friendship with his opponents impossible. Douglas Hyde's opinion that, quote, Stokes could not understand the sport of wit with which O'Grady was liberally endowed is also worth noting.
The specific cause of the estrangement may have been an exchange of letters that were printed in the English literary journal, The Academy, in 1889. In one of those letters, O'Grady attacked Stokes' lack of proficiency in modern Irish. O'Grady wrote, As to the phrase which I substituted for the true reading, and which my critic says is not Irish, I deny his jurisdiction. He and all the continental scholars together are incompetent to judge the point. And this um, also was, um, it was, it was a point really um, that scholars such as O'Grady regularly made, you know, that they, that they um, were competent in the modern spoken Irish, whereas other scholars weren't um, and were lacking as a result of that. As Geraldine Parsons has argued, Stokes and O'Grady had assumed strongly differentiated positions within the circles concerned with the study of the Irish language and medieval Irish literature. On the one hand was Stokes, quote, the careful practitioner of the science of philology, aligned with a rigorous scholarship of the German universities, while on the other was O'Grady, who claimed authority as the instinctive editor and translator, distinctively Irish, and the last member of the Gaelic learned classes. So quite a stark uh, contrast there. And this is exactly the distinction that was being made by Hull at the, in the quote at the outset of this lecture. Stokes wasn't completely critical, however, and he did point out some of the work's positive points, as, for example, its glossary and translation. In an assessment of Stokes' own edition of the Oglove, Geraldine Parsons notes the following, quote, In drawing on four manuscripts of the five now known, in seeking to establish an urtext, in presenting a critical apparatus, notes, glossary, indices and corrigenda, Stokes had made the more lasting contribution to scholarship. So, um, I suppose here she's prizing uh, Stokes' edition over um, O'Grady's. But that's not to say either that Stokes' edition isn't without fault. A further factor in their estrangement was Stokes' criticism of the Cork scribe Joseph O'Lungon. O'Lungon was the son of the scribe Michal O'Golungon, and together with Owen Conlon, he provided the index of first lines and general index for the catalogue of manuscripts in the Royal Irish Academy. In 1865, after the death um, of Eugene O'Curry, he was appointed scribe in the academy and he re remained in the post until his death in 1880. He transcribed copies of Lauren the Hira and Lauer Bdach and Lauer Leinach. Facsimiles of Irish codices had been made from Olungan's transcripts by the academy, but Stokes had claimed that they were untrustworthy. He was wrong, however, as facsimiles made later proved Olungan to be correct. In the preface to Silva Gedelica, O'Grady defended O'Lungon, stating, quote, The first three lithographed are noble monuments of modern Irish penmanship, and deserve better than that the able and inoffensive man, last of a line of scribes who executed them, should have had his last years embittered, if not his end hastened by outrageous onslaughts of incompetent critics. I knew Joseph O'Lungon well. So here he's uh, calling Stokes um, an incompetent critic. So really he's not mincing his words there at all. As Sean O'Ling has argued, Stokes was a great controversialist, O'Grady less so, but more than anyone's match if it came to argument. And, you know, as all of this uh, indicates, the world of Celtic scholarship certainly wasn't for the faint-hearted. Um, so yet another scholar was critical of Silva Gedelica, and this time it was Professor Robert Atkinson of TCD, and he was someone who wasn't um, shy of uh, being controversial either. 
Um, it should be noted, however, that Atkinson had his own agenda. In giving evidence to the Vice-Regal Commission on Intermediate Education in 1898, he poured scorn on Irish language literature, both modern and ancient. And according to David Green, it is likely that Atkinson was referring to Silva Gadelica in the following remark. Quote, no human being could read that book without feeling absolutely degraded by contact with it, with filth which, which I will not demean myself to mention. So he uh, doesn't give any uh, further indication as to what exactly he meant. Um, but W.B. Yeats came to O'Grady's defence. He wrote a letter to the Dublin Daily Express saying to quote uh, Green, quote, the attack on Silva Gadelica must have been made in a paroxysm of political excitement. And the next quote here is from Yeats also, uh, number 14. I prefer principally to inquire how, how a philologist and archaeologist of eminence comes to hold and express violently such opinions on matters that are neither philological nor archaeological, and which he would under ordinary circumstances have approached with some modesty and timidity. And then Yeats continued by way of explanation that Atkinson was motivated by political prejudice. O'Grady did um, have an amicable relationship with one of the continental scholars. He praised Ernst Windisch in the preface to Silva Gadelica as one of the few distinguished continental scholars who performed his own task without injury to his fellow. Windisch uh, acknowledged O'Grady's assistance in the preface to his edition of Tom Bokulnia, published in Leipzig in 1905. And Kuno Meyer, in his review of the book in Zeitschrift für Keltische Philologie, also acknowledged O'Grady's two contributions as giving its central value to the volume. So just before I finish up, um, I just would like to take a brief look at O'Grady's um, final opus magnum, uh, which was published posthumously, um, and it was a catalogue of the Irish language manuscripts in the library of the British Museum. He began compiling it in 1886, but stopped working on the project in 1892 after a disagreement with the library authorities. It is worth noting that Robin Flower claimed in the preface to volume two that the hiatus was due to O'Grady's increasing ill health. By the time he recommenced, his health had begun to fail and the work remained unfinished. Robin Flower completed it later and it appears under the title Catalogue of Irish Manuscripts in the British Museum, Volume 1, which is published in 1926. It is an invaluable reference work and Flower noted in a biographical sketch sketch that O'Grady possessed, quote, a unique method of interweaving text, translation, interpretation and commentary, and infusing through the whole the strong colours of his own remarkable personality. And Hull claimed, his, his, his catalogue is like no other catalogue. It remains a mine of information on Irish history, genealogy and literature, out of which succeeding generations of students will quarry. And number 15 um, on your handout, I'm not going to read that now, um, it's quite long, I'll just let you read that yourselves, um, just to move on. So after the public, um, his work on uh, the uh, catalogue of um, manuscripts in the British Museum, um, O'Grady also contributed a number of translations um, of Thombo Cúlne, Brish Lochmore, Mai Murthemne, to Hull's The Cúcullin Saga in Irish Literature, which was published in 1898. He wrote an essay on Anglo-Irish aristocracy for Ideals in Ireland, which was published in 1901 and which was edited by Lady Gregory. 
He also contributed a large number of articles to periodicals and left material behind for an edition of Kathrem Preli. He was also an important collector of manuscripts. So, for example, he purchased a collection of um, Irish tales um, from O'Daly in 1853, and then he presented that to the British Museum in 1892. After his death, his library, including some of his manuscripts, was sold to Sheraton Hughes booksellers and publishers in Manchester. And there was a large number of manuscripts, um, 53 volumes and two bundles of paper, so quite substantial. And these were pur purchased from that firm and given to the National Library of Wales by two anonymous donors. The papers and manuscripts he left behind are divided between the National Library of Wales in Aberystwyth and University Library in Cambridge. It appears that O'Grady gave Sir Norman Moore some manuscripts before his death, and after his de death it appears that others were presented to him by O'Grady's widow. So just um, by way of conclusion, Eleanor Hull described Standish Hayes O'Grady as the last of the great Irish antiquarians of the past. He was one of a long line of Protestant Irish antiquarians, beginning with the likes of Joseph Cooper Walker in the final decades of the 18th century, who took an interest in native Gaelic culture and played an important role in its preservation. But he was more than just an antiquarian. In an assessment of his own contribution to Celtic scholarship, O'Grady stated the following, quote, I aspire to a role no higher than that of the humble quarryman, who painfully gets the rough stuff, winds it to the surface, and there leaves it to be dealt with as they list by stonecutter and sculptor, architect and engineer. Here is raw material for Celtologue and philologue, for folklorist, comparative mythologist and other. So he was concerned, therefore, with providing the raw material, and in his case, I suppose, uh, edited texts. Um, for the use of other scholars. But he was too modest in estimating the importance of his scholarship. One can only speculate as to the works he might have produced had he not taken such a long sabbatical, 30 years as I said earlier. Perhaps his most important legacy is volume one of the catalogue of um, Irish manuscripts in the British Library or British Museums it was called initially, which still remains an invaluable reference tool for Irish language scholars today. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.